If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Exodus chapter 4. <clears throat> we are still talking about Moses, and uh, you're going to enjoy it. So let's do that. Uh, that's my introduction for today. <laughs> that's so good. That's why I went to grad school, to learn essay stuff like that. Um, let's pray. Uh, God, I pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear. We pray that uh, the same spirit uh, that raised Jesus from the dead will be a spirit that we're in touch with in our own hearts and our own spirits. We thank you for the way that you are God who's present in all things, the good and the bad, in a moment just like this. The ordinary, the everyday, you are here just like you were in the, the mountaintops. And for those of us who come here this morning with heavy hearts, I pray that your spirit would be comforting to them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I was um, down with Lindsay, and we are on holiday. I say the word holiday instead of vacation just because it makes me sound arrogant. And um, so we're down on holiday, and we go to this place in Austin called Barton Spring. And before we go there, Lindsay says, oh, I need to go get a book for a book club. <clears throat> so we go into this bookstore in Austin, and uh, I'm waiting there. She's picking out the book, and I realize I'm just going to grab a book off the shelf, and uh, I don't really do that very often. Uh, I usually order online, so I go to bookstores. I'm waiting there. There's a book that has a picture of the lead character in the popular TV show, Breaking Bad, on the front of it. And it was a book about, entitled Difficult Men. And it's a book about the, the growing number of heroes and main characters in TV shows that are all like um, kind of bad people. And so you, you, this author, who I think uh, writes for Rolling Stone, he wrote this entire book, and his, his premise was, in this what he calls the third golden age of television, now that many of these TV shows are not as heavily influenced by advertisers, advertisers because they're on premium cable or cable, they have the ability to be more creative with the stories they're telling. And so you find all these different characters that lead these shows that are often deeply flawed. Uh, David Chase is the guy who was behind HBO's hit show Sopranos, among other things, and his argument is that you can have your main character have a lot of flaws. He can be lazy, he can be a terrible person, he can do awful things, but there's only one thing we require of our heroes on TV. This is the one thing we require of these heroes is that they are always the smartest person in the room. They might not be a good husband, like Don Draper. They might be a drug dealer, even though they work at a school like Walter White. They might have all these problems, but as long as they're the smartest person in the room, we're good with them. And I think that's an interesting filter as we're reading the story about Exodus. In the Exodus, there's a hero, the guy that everyone looks at and goes, you are the centerpiece of the story, Moses. And I'm wondering, does that filter still work with him? Is he always the smartest person in the room? Interesting. Exodus 4 is where we're going to pick up, and we're going to have that in the back of our head as we're reading this story. Starting in verse 1. Moses answered to God, what if they do not believe me? Or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it, which is the biblical response to what happens when you see a snake. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. 
This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into the cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So Moses, still wondering who God is. This has happened after a long list of amazing things that God has done. Recently, there was the burning bush. Then God actually spoke to him with an audible voice. But that's not enough for Moses, so he questions again. And so he gets three more signs, as this is his third set of questions for God. And so God starts off and says, what is this thing in your hand? And it's almost like a magician who invites someone from the crowd onto the stage and says, hey, look at this deck of cards. Are they a normal deck of cards? It's almost like God starts off with that. And Moses says, "Um, I got this staff in my hand. And so he throws it on the ground. And what does it become? A snake, which doesn't mean much in our culture. If you see a snake, your only appropriate response is to run away or kill it. That's the only Christian thing to do. But in those days, they had a different view of snakes. Let's go to this next slide. This is from something we found, not not me personally, but someone found this in King Tut, the famous Egyptian leader. This is from his tomb or mummy thing or whatever. And if you look at this structure, which is a very common structure and a shape, you see something on there. He looks just like a snake. Why? Because in southern Egypt, they had this divine opinion of snakes, or as the spitting cobras, what we called it, and they believed it to be like this divine image. And so it's no coincidence that the Pharaoh is going to put on his sarcophagus, I believe is the name of what that's called, um, an image of a snake. And as you can actually see on his forehead, there are two snakes up there. And so this is this divine image for an Egyptian. And God says, take your staff, throw it on the ground, and we can turn it into something that's divine. And guess what? If you reach down, we can turn it right back into a dead piece of a tree. The second sign, he puts his hand into his cloak and it comes out with a skin disease, which is not something you normally see, except, of course, in a high school locker room where people have very dirty clothes and you get ringworm very easily. But besides that normal encounter, which Karcher knows all about, this is not normal. He puts his hand in, it comes out, it's leprous, he puts it back in, it's okay. You would think after those, Moses would be on board with this, but somehow he's not good with this yet. And so God says, okay, you go take a scoop of the Nile River. This is the life source of the Egyptian economy. They function based on the Nile River. This is the source of life for them. You scoop it up, you pour it out, and it's going to turn to death. And you think at this point, Moses is going to say, the burning bush was cool, your audible voice is all right, the snake to staff thing is pretty neat, the leprosy in the the coat, eh, but the blood into water, water into, that's pretty cool, but of, of course, Moses isn't into it. It's not enough. So this is what happens. Verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who made them deaf or mute? Who gives them 
sight or makes them blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you. And go to the next slide. And it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. So Moses comes up to God and said, here's the problem. I don't talk really well. Now, there's one interpretation that's a pretty popular one that says Moses had a speech impediment, which I get the problem. If you are a speaker and you have a speech impediment, that's not a good thing. As someone who is a speaker, I've had to go to speech pathologist because during a season when I was in grad school, I was preaching and I kept losing my voice, which is kind of problematic if you know you're supposed to use your voice for your job. And it's also problematic if you have a problem speaking and you have to tell people what appointment you're going to and it's a speech pathologist, which is not an easy thing to say. But regardless, that was funny in my head. Um, (laughs) But regardless, Moses says, I've got this problem talking. And it could be maybe on a deeper level that he's slow to speak and he's slow to perceive the divine word to him. And so he's slow to get what God is saying. Either way, Moses says, I've got problems. I still can't do this. And so God says, okay, your brother, bring him along. Let him talk for you. Now, I don't know if any of you are fans of the comedian Jim Gaffigan. Anyone here fans of Jim Gaffigan? Yeah, yeah, he's funny. He's a funny guy. So he's got this bit about living in New York with four kids in a two-bedroom apartment. Let that sink in. Four kids, two-bedroom apartment, small apartment in New York. And he talks about how terrible it is to try to get all four kids in one bedroom to go to sleep at night. He even jokes that the reason he does stand-up comedy at night is because it's an excuse for him to not have to be there during bedtime. Because kids in that environment, little kids, one apartment bedroom, struggling to go to bed. And he says, it's almost like a reversed terrorist negotiation. You say, kids... Just stay in there. We'll give you anything. A helicopter to Cuba. It doesn't matter. Just stay in there. And he's just exhausted afterward. And if you've ever been there, you get that feeling. You're finally downstairs. You're finally in your room. You're finally in the other room. And you're exhausted. And your kids are in the room. They're staying there. And it doesn't matter that you've promised to get them a pink pony named Olaf tomorrow. It doesn't matter. The world can end. You're just exhausted because it's finally over, right? You had that feeling? You know what I'm talking about? And it's almost as if God is saying... Moses, I have given you all of these signs. You were a baby born into a genocide, and I saved you. You were like the first orphan Annie, okay? You end up at the most rich person's house, and you live there, okay? That's not good enough for you. Okay, well, then I'll talk to you through a burning bush. I'll give you all these signs, but it's still not enough, and you still come up with excuses like, I just can't talk, God. I can't do this. And God said, okay, whatever. We'll just give you what you want. And sometimes you just go, is God really patient with me? Maybe you've never been there. Maybe I'm just the only one. But sometimes you feel like, ah, God continually has to put up with the same failures and my same shortcomings and the inability I have to trust him. And you hear the story of Moses and you go, I'm not that bad at least, right? 
God's never spoken to me through a burning bush. I've never had my hand turned into leprosy and not leprosy. I've never turned a stick into a snake and a snake into a stick. I've never done all that. Because if I had those things, I would definitely listen to whatever God said. But the point isn't to compare who has more or less. The point is who God is. You have this patient God who is still there. He might get frustrated, but he doesn't ever walk away, no matter how much of a problem Moses has trusting what God says about him. Now, I'm a, a little bit of a fan of late-night talk shows. I really uh, enjoyed the, uh, the interview thing, and obviously that's an interest of mine. And so I, I seem to watch a lot of these interviews, and you have a common story that seems to get told that's always received really well. It's this common story where you have celebrity that's out in public, and a couple walks up to them with a phone. It used to be a camera. Now it's just a phone with a story. It's the same story, though. They walk up. They bring their phone, and they say, can we get a picture? So celebrity says, sure, I'll take a picture. So celebrity looks at the girl, puts his arm around her, and smiles at the guy. And the guy kind of looks at him kind of weird. And then he makes some coy joke about how it got awkward. And then as the celebrity's telling the story, the punchline is this, where the unsuspecting person who came up and asked for a picture was really just asking the celebrity to take a picture of the couple, not to be in the picture. And the crowd laughs because it's a funny story where you have a celebrity reminded of the simple truth that it's not about you. And everyone likes those stories. It's always a funny story because even... If you are up here in our society, there is one common truth that we all have to deal with. That it's not about you. And that's one of the basic lessons that the universe and life is trying to teach you. If you lucked out to be born into a family that loves you and cares for you, as you're growing up, one of the things that we try to teach you is that you matter. You are significant. When you open your Christmas presents, we're going to all sit around and cheer for you. We'll go to Orlando, Florida in July just so that you're happy about dancing with Belle. You do those kind of things. But if you are a 35-year-old man and your family gathers around and takes pictures of you every time you open a Christmas present, it's kind of creepy, right? Right? As a kid, you want to learn that you're important. But then as you grow older, you realize it's not about you. When you get you f- your first job, you're not the boss, and you're reminded that you're the low person on the totem pole. And then when you lose your first job and you realize the company is going to go on without you, you realize it's not about you. When you get married, you realize, I don't have control of all of my time. And when you have kids, you realize you have control of none of your time. And this is the universe teaching you, it's just not about you. And no matter who you are, whether you're a normal person like you and me, or you're Moses, it's not about you. And that's Moses' biggest problem, is that he was looking through all his circumstances, specifically his calling by God through his eyes. There's kind of a wordplay that goes on in the interaction that Moses has with God, where Moses keeps on using the word I. I can't do this. I can't speak. I can't do this. And then God responds, I can do this. I can do this. Who is the one? It is I who do this. Now, obviously, that's a little bit grammatically incorrect, but the point is there's this wordplay going on in the Hebrew where Moses is talking about his I, 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 and God's saying, I can do this. And it comes down to this bigger question of, who do you trust? I or the great I am? Because the problem that Moses has is that he thinks the story is ultimately about him. And here's the problem. I think Moses got an advanced copy of the Ridley Scott movie about the life of Moses. 
he might have had a time machine or something, but I think that's what happened. Because if you ever saw the movie that Ridley Scott put out about Moses a few months ago, last year, the story of Moses, according to Ridley Scott, in the movie is Moses is doing all the stuff. He's training this militia that's going to take down Egypt. He's launching fire arrows. He's blowing things up. He's training people how to be archers. He's doing all of this stuff, which is a great movie. The problem is it's not the biblical story because Moses is doing none of that in Exodus. And so if you're asking the question of who can be a good hero, is it someone who's always brave or honest or true? No, it's the person who's the smartest in the room, according to that book I referenced earlier. And the reason that filter still works in the book of Exodus is because the real hero, it's not Moses. Moses isn't the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story because he is the smartest person in whatever room that he's in. And God sees something that Moses doesn't see. And the problem is Moses has the same issues that you and I often have. Is we look at our circumstances and our calling through our perspective instead of God's perspective. And when we look at it through our lens, often it seems like this is something there's no way for us to ever do. When you're always asking, what can I do? How can I do this? How can I accomplish? How can I succeed? When you're looking through your eyes, it doesn't work. So I heard this story, I read it, and then I talked to the person who wrote it, and it seemed like a ridiculous story that couldn't be true. If I didn't, like, double-check this, there's no way, well, I would still tell the story, but I wouldn't believe it was a true story, because it's just so ridiculous. Uh, There was a guy at this, this friend of mine's church whose wife was an addict. And this, uh, this husband, his wife fell back into her addiction, and she ended up leaving the husband and the kids and going out and living on the streets. She finds a boyfriend on the streets, and she ends up living in his car. And her life has completely fallen apart. Alcohol, drugs have taken over. And the husband sees his wife living with another guy on the streets, and he says, you need to get your life cleaned up. Both of you can live in our house, in my house, and get your lives back together. And so the husband invites his wife and her new boyfriend who are completely drugged out to live in their house for a little while, and then he gets both of them into rehab. In rehab, she gets cleaned up. She gets off the dope. He can't take her back, though. But she's getting her life together. And she ends up moving on, and she decides she's going to marry the same guy that she was living in the car with on the street. Now they're both clean, and she wants to get married. But she has no one at the wedding to walk her down the aisle. So who walks her down the aisle? Her ex-husband volunteers to go to his ex-wife's new wedding and walk her down the aisle and give her away. And the story doesn't end there. The The wife and her new husband are living somewhere, and every night she calls her kids and prays that God would open a way for them to be able to live together again. Her ex-husband hears this prays about it, and says, I'm going to invite you and your new husband to move into our house so that we can raise our kids together. And then eventually, what happens is the new husband puts his career together, starts a landscaping company, and he hires ex-addicts and helps clean them up. The ex-wife goes back to school, gets an MA in counseling, and she's a therapist now. 
And the husband and the new husband are doing devotionals on the back porch every morning. And I read the story and asked the author, you must have made that up because that's not even real. He says, no, it's real because it's my brother-in-law who is the guy. And you go, how, how in the world could you do that? Like, I get they're Canadian, so they're really nice to begin with. Yes, it's true. It's part of it. But who could do that? Like, I saw all half of you were shaking your heads going, no way. I read that, and I was like, on a chance? No, there's zero chance I would ever do that. Because I'm looking at it through my perspective, and my eyes say there is no way I could do that. When asked why he did that, the guy said, I'm, I'm not the biggest Christian in the world, but if I know anything about Christianity, it's about forgiveness. And you go, thus said the Lord, that's it. And if you're looking at this through your perspective, there's no way you could do that. But when you have a different set of eyes that is your filter for your calling, for what's in front of you, new things become possible. The impossible becomes possible. There's no way you could think of ever forgiving an ex who did that to you. But somehow when you see through God's perspective, forgiveness becomes a real possibility. And for many of us, we've been put in situations where we've been called to do things that we never could have imagined we could ever do. And for each of us, it looks different. For some of us, it is forgiving someone who has hurt us in a terrible way. It is forgiving someone who has wronged us. And there is no possible way we could ever give the hand of grace when all we want to do is give them a fist. But somehow when you see it through God's perspective, forgiveness is an option. For some of us, it's standing up for justice in ways that are going to cost us something. For some of us, it's standing up for things that we know are not right and we need to say something. We need to be a voice for those who have no voice. We need to use what we have to make a difference. And it seems like there's no possible way I could sacrifice this for that. But if you look at it through God's perspective, there is a way to do that. For some of us, it's learning to lead in our families. And the hardest thing for us would be to learn how to pray with our kids. Or to tell your kids, I'm, I'm sorry I've kind of let you down in this area. Through your perspective, it's not possible. But if you look at it through God's lens, there is a way to do that. Maybe it's confession. Some of us need to confess to take what is in the dark and bring it out to the light. But there's no way we can ever imagine embarrassing ourselves by saying what's in the darkness, things that we want to hide from people. But when you see it through God's perspective, there is a way to do it. But Moses' ultimate problem is that he looked at his calling in front of him and said, through my eyes, I can't do this. And there is no amount of miraculous sign that can overcome that. No matter what God does, when you're looking at it through your perspective, there is not enough evidence. There is no miraculous event that can convince you of that. The only thing that can change that is when you start looking at it through a different perspective. And you realize that it's not about you. That you aren't the hero of the story. There's a bigger hero. There's a bigger person involved in what's going on right now in your life. And when you do that, you can go out and do the calling that you have before you. That thing in front of you, that thing that, that, that stirs inside of you, that, that thing that, that voice inside of you is pulling you to, whatever it is, I trust the, the, uh, the mysterious ways of God work in each of our own lives. But you can do that. And so you do the counterintuitive thing. Because there are two postures towards the world. The, the way of the I. This is ultimately the way of sin. Sin always curves us in on ourselves. Where it makes you care just about yourself and what's convenient and easy and comfortable for you. And there's a posture towards the world that causes us to live into. And when you are living out of that perspective of just what I can see and what's good for me, you end up living like this. 
But when you embrace your calling, you embrace it in the way of Jesus on the cross. You do this. Uh, Ken Brantley is the guy who uh, was the doctor who got Ebola. He was uh, at ACU the same time Zach and I and a few other people were there. And reading his book this week or this weekend, uh, I was amazed uh, because he was talking about the real probability of being a medical missionary going to Africa that you're not going to skip over all the diseases that are killing all the people around you. As a 30-year-old, as a he already had his wills prepared, and he had a letter written to be given to his parents knowing that there was a chance that he was going to die. Because this is even before Ebola breaks out, because he knows just because he's a Christian and just because he's a missionary and just because he's a doctor doesn't mean that God all of a sudden prevents him from dealing with the adversity of life. But he says, I know this is what I'm called to do. And there's no way you can see things from your perspective and say, what is good for me? How can I do this? How can I sacrifice? How can I go here? You can't make that happen, but unless you see a bigger picture. And I think ultimately that's what the story of Moses points us to. That when you realize you're not the hero of the story, it enables you to go down a path which you thought otherwise was impossible for you to go down. So I'd encourage us to have that same sort of sight. Let's pray. God, my prayer this morning is two things. One, may we know that you are with us in whatever calling that we have, whatever path in front of us, whatever thing that you are leading us to, we do not face it alone. The God of angel armies is with us. The same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is in us. The same God who spoke and created the world is in us. The same God who was there on the cross, who was able to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The same Jesus who chose the way of shame and self-emptying over the way of power and glory. That it is a path that has been walked down before by Jesus and plenty of us in this room. And whatever path that is lined up in front of us, help us to have the faith in you to go because we know we're not alone. And the second part is I pray that we would have eyes to see the world through your perspective. May we see the adversity in our lives the same way that Canadian husband saw the struggle of his wife and the way that it hurt him and his kids. And let us look at things like that, not from our own perspective, but through your perspective. And so give us eyes to see the world in a different way. Where our eyes don't just see what I want to do we would learn to see how you see the world. And in doing so, we would trust the great eye. We pray this in your name. Amen.